resorts, homes and the newly built hospital have been washed away. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. We need to be prepared for the future. I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream. You must ready. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. Eventually, I know it's going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hello and welcome to Pacific Prepared. I'm Fred Hooper. We've got a great team of reporters who are on the ground chatting to you. And the stories we bring you could help you, your family and your community prepare for natural disasters. The weather and how it affects you is already part of your life. So let's keep talking about being prepared. On today's show, why some Fijians are opting for an older style of home, otherwise known as a burra. We'll look back on someone who's doing some research at the site of the 2022 volcanic eruption in Tonga, and I'm talking seriously close. Hear more soon. And we revisit a story looking at empowering women in disasters in Vanuatu. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. What's your plan? Are you ready to leave your home? Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific Prepared. Your home can be everything. It means a gathering place, somewhere to eat with your family. And probably most of all, it means shelter. They can always be rebuilt. But if your home is damaged or destroyed by a cyclone or a storm, it can also disrupt your lives for such a long time. And of course, adding to that, it's upsetting to lose your home. In Fiji's Yasawa Islands, some of the residents are turning back to a more traditional style of building homes, otherwise known as a burra. We're sitting in a fiberglass outboard boat, skipping across the top of the ocean and heading toward the village of Novatua in Fiji's Yasawa Islands. The outline of buildings starts to become clearer. Not too different from what you might imagine. Tin roofs, sometimes with a pitch in the middle, small glass panel windows, and with some of the glass missing at times, and a door in the middle. And the entire house has been raised up slightly off the ground, sitting on stumps. When you look up the beach, there's some houses of a slightly different style. Rectangle building, what looks like weatherboards, but the roof is much steeper, with dark brown thatching basically natural materials jammed in to create protection from the weather and really thick probably about 30 centimeters or more and also it's really really windy blowing right into the village palm trees are bending over it's blowing so hard this part of fiji sees a lot of cyclones and the local communities here are starting to revert back to the older style of building houses otherwise known as Buras. My name is Sabambari, I'm from the Navatua village. Uh, I live here for a few years. So I'm here with the guys who are building Fijian Buras. There's, uh, what have we got, one, two, three, four, eight guys in here at the moment, like they're sort of in the rafters of the roof and they're putting it together with, well actually what are they putting it together with? I'm not really sure what that is. This, uh, this stuff here. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know the name in European, but uh, we call it. Uh, it looks like it looks like a root. Yeah, it's like a root. It's a plant. Is it a mangrove root or something? No, it's not a mangrove. It, it, it always grew in the sandy area, okay. in the bush. Yeah. Mm. And do you have to dry it out before you use no. it, or no? No, we don't have to dry it out. You just use it. Pull it out from the plant, yeah. and you and you use it. Yep. When it dries, it's very hard to use it. Now you're going back to building or like this, and this is a more traditional style of Fijian house? Yes. Uh, this is the older style for Fijian house. Before we was using a thatch on the wall, and now we're uh, transferring to the timber. The people constructing the house are sitting or standing up in the roof, balancing on the structure made from what looks like bamboo, in some cases still bright green in colour. And they're tying the roof supports together with the natural material that we spoke about a minute ago. It looks like thin rope. How do these houses compare to more modern houses, which there are some here as well, with corrugated iron? And Which one sort of does better in, in a cyclone? Oh, the Fijian Buri. Yeah. Because when it's, cold, when, when it's cold weather, it's warm inside. And when it's hot, it's warm inside. Okay. Yeah. So it's got a constant temperature inside. Yes. And how does it go in strong winds as well? Strong winds, uh, the structure of the uh, Fijian Bure is uh, suited for the strong wind. And uh, you see, when we have a sh- when, the, when the winds shake the Bure, they have to cut the thing on the post and they drop the roof down. So the family will be safe inside. As the structure of the roof. Okay. And do you think that more Fijians are going to start building houses like this rather than going to the modern style? According to the category of the hurricanes, of the cyclone they are coming, more Fijians are going back to the Fijian Buri. Yeah. Because when they go to the modern houses, they have to suit the engineer standard for building modern houses to meet the category of the cycle they are going right now in our village. All right. And they're quite, I mean, they're actually really nice and beautiful to look at as well. Yeah, yeah. We can see right through the roof. Obviously, there's no roof on it, really. There's the structure, the bones there for the roof. What, what happens next once this is finished? Well, we put the... We have taken already the photo of the coconut weaving there. Yes, like we put it first, yep. then we put a grass outside on there. So there's like a lining that goes on the outside of the roof, and you sort of tie that to these yeah. inside posts, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, it's thatched as well with yeah. grass. Yeah. And really thick, though, like... My, my two feet thick, maybe. Yeah. The more thick, the better. The better. The better the roof. Yeah. How long does it take to thatch a roof like that? It will take five to six years. Oh, and how long does it take to actually make it, though? Or how long will make for yeah. a roof? Uh, depends on the, the manpower. If it is uh, very, if it's uh, more men here, then it will take one week to finish a uh, Fijian Bure as this size, the roof. 
How are these guys going? Are they doing a good job? Or? Good job. Yeah. They're doing a good job. Yeah. Maybe the next uh, next week by Tuesday, they'll finish the roof. Really? That quickly? So it's only, what is it today? Tuesday today? So another week, yeah. One of the workers finishes tying a small section of the roofing in place. He seems happy with how it looks and feels. As he reefs downward on the tie to test it. Is it good? Good. And so how long before someone could effectively live in here or, or stay in this house? How long? How long until it's ready, completely finished, inside and outside? Oh, uh, I don't think it's take a month. Uh, maybe a fortnight, if everything is ready, if all the, all the material is ready. Residents of Novatua village in the Asawa Islands in Fiji showing me exactly how the more traditional style of Fijian homes are built. Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific prepared. After one of the biggest volcanic eruptions in recent history, scientists from across the world were all of a sudden looking at Tonga. It offered up so much information to scientists to learn more about volcanoes and help create better warning systems for people. Earlier in the year, Professor Shane Cronin, a volcanologist from New Zealand, spoke with Pacific Prepared reporter Anasiu Falakono. So we know Honga has erupted in uh, recent times. So in the most recent eruptions were 2009 and there was another one in uh, 2014-15. And so this event began in the same way. It began something like the uh, 20th or 19th of uh, December of 2021, and the activity was similar to before. And what's been happening since then, it became slightly larger and slightly larger during January. And then, of course, the very uh, big day for, for the eruption, which was a horrifying event with the explosions, the tsunami waves, and also the ash when everything became uh, dark with the ashfall. So not only the impacts in Tonga were hugely felt, but also the impacts were felt around the world because the tsunami from this eruption went across to Japan, to Korea, to, the, to South America as well. And so the event, the event was worldwide. And one of the things that we first realized when we started looking at this eruption, it's one of the biggest eruptions that we have recorded on modern satellite instruments. So the eruption shot uh, ash and gas and hot material up into the air. It reached more than 55 kilometers in, in the atmosphere and through the atmosphere into what we call the stratosphere above. The ash from the eruption covered the main island of Tongatapu e Wahabai and only a small amount on the island of Avao. As a volcanologist, what caused the massive eruption? Um, it's very unusual for an eruption to be heard all around the other side of the world, to Alaska, or to uh, I have colleagues in Switzerland who were measuring uh, the earthquake shaking associated with this eruption, but also the air, the shock wave that went around the world went to them as well. So an uh, in, incredibly large event. And we were worried because we had no communications 
uh, with Tonga and we were worried that there would be large numbers of fatalities and um, thankfully that has not been the case and you know the Tonga is very very fortunate in that there were several several warning signs first of all natural warning signs first of all the, the small tsunami waves that began uh, made people aware and to leave the beach then the explosions although they were very frightening they were a very good warning signal for people to, this is something different, you know, get away from the beach, get away from the shore. And that was what saved people's lives. Because ashfall, you know, the uh, ash falling around on the landscape, that is not necessarily going to be uh, a fatal hazard. Mm -hmm. It's a nuisance. It's bad for crops, bad for plants, bad for water supply. But it's not, you know, in of itself uh, a dangerous. But the tsunami are very dangerous and these tsunami were huge so we've been measuring in different parts of the country with our survey um, the the height of the wave so um, because everyone got away and got to high land and when we go to small islands um, and we we're looking say in Numuka uh, and we were talking to people about all of the places that they got to to escape from from the tsunami and then we were taking our instruments and measuring very closely where the tsunami went, how high the wave was, and how high the run-up was. And we use this because we need to know for future how we can make a better forecast for tsunami, how we can make a better hazard assessment for tsunami. And one thing that we really learned from this uh, experience is that the models that we have for the ash fall and the models that we have for tsunami are not working well. This is not, this is not just the problem for Honga. This is not also just the problem for Tonga. All of the models. So the models for the ashfall come from the US. The models for the tsunami come from a range of different groups, from Japan, from USA, and so on. None of the models were working because this event was so much bigger and so much more violent than anything that we have seen in the past. So we can only really base our models on what we think is theoretically possible. But this eruption is rewriting the rules on what we think is theoretically possible. Well, in Tonga, as you mentioned, you're working closely with the team from the Tonga Geology Department. What have you collected so far? We're going around different parts of the country and we're measuring the height of the tsunami in the trees, how far the tsunami reached, how much ash uh, was deposited, so we're taking samples of, of ash, either uh, measuring small areas and collecting sample or, or measuring the thickness. And so we're trying to capture all this information before all the trees regrow, before the ash washes away, so that we can then work with the Americans, the Japanese, with all of these different groups uh, in the UK and France that are coming together to provide better models for the hazard. With many years of experience working as a volcanologist, and you've been in Tonga a few times now, why did the warning system did not predict the eruption? Yeah, so there are two, two aspects of warning. One is the timing, you know, so when would, uh, when would something like this happen? And it's quite difficult because there aren't any seismographs that are working currently in Tonga. So we have um, some instruments that are being installed. Uh, the older instruments were gradually uh, falling off service. So the only way that the team was able to monitor 
for specifically the timing of an eruption was to observe what was going on and that always always a reaction so there's a reaction to it there's no forecasting because we can't see what's happening below ground with seismographs and so now that's being um, addressed so new seismographs are being installed uh, now and there's a series of seismographs being donated through uh, Australia that are going in to help improve that uh, that monitoring system. The other aspect of understanding the scale of eruption as you describe, that comes from uh, lived experience. Mm -hmm. So geologically speaking, you know, looking at this from a geological perspective, we could say that this type of large eruption is possible from the volcano because when we last studied this volcano in great detail uh, at the end of 2015, and in fact, we've just written um, uh, uh, science um, papers on this in the last few years. Um, we discovered that not only were the eruptions just the small, regular ones like we see, but there are some that are very large and produce extremely explosive events. Now, we see that in the geologic deposits, and we see the ages of those, they happen once every 1,000 years at this mm. volcano. So when we look at a, an eruption beginning, and it, uh, in, as we did in 2021, and we look at it, and it looks like the past historical ones, we currently don't have any way of knowing how we go from that to the next gear to the really big ones. I will add, though, one important thing, which is really important for the, uh, for the people of Tonga, is that the volcano has fundamentally changed its shape. The volcano is still intact as a large submarine mountain. So it's hard to imagine that because the Hongas were just these two small islands and they're even smaller now. But underneath the ocean waves is a big volcano. So it's like a big mountain. So that mountain is still standing, but instead of it having a fairly flat top, it now has a very large hole in the middle of it. And so that hole is at least 800 meters as far as we know. So the centre of the volcano has completely collapsed in on itself. That means one really important thing, that the water in the middle is about 800 to 1,000 metres deep. If there is an eruption, the next eruptions will only be at the ocean floor because there's so much pressure of water holding that back that can't erupt to the surface. So the reason it erupted to the surface in early this year is that the uh, the volcano top was only about um, about 140 meters below sea level so not enough water to hold it back and in fact lots of water to make it f uh, the water is acting like fuel new eruptions will be uh, much more gentle in fact we probably won't even notice them because they'll be happening in the deep ocean floor New Zealand volcanologist Shane Cronin and Anasiu Falakono speaking earlier this year about the research being done in Tonga. Being prepared is to save lives, to save properties. Helping you stay safe. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared. What role do women play when there's a disaster? Maybe they're the organiser. 
the go-to person who knows where everything is. This is something that reporter Florence Fanua has been finding out more about recently while chatting with an organisation that's focusing on developing women into leaders in Vanuatu, especially when there's a disaster. Empowering women in Vanuatu to lead humanitarian responses, Action Aid Vanuatu, a non-government organisation working in Vanuatu, is supporting local women to become powerful community leaders in times of crisis. Flora Fano, the country program manager for Action Aid Vanuatu, says when women are empowered to lead humanitarian responses, their whole community recovers faster. We know that during disasters, women are on the front line, caring for their communities, evacuating and caring for children, the insured and elderly, and making sure their families have enough food and water. From our experience, when women are empowered to lead humanitarian responses, their whole community recovers faster. So when ActionAid Vanuatu came to Vanuatu after the Category 5 tropical cyclone Pam hit the country in 2015, we developed a new kind of emergency response that sought to strengthen women's leadership and voice in defining the protection response. Without an existing presence and with limited resources, ActionAid established a women's forum to lead the national disaster response. The women in Tok Tok together, with, we call it WITT network, offers women a safe space to receive support have their voices heard and collaborate to ensure future emergency preparations. This action ensured women would not be forgotten and establish an entry point for ongoing work to support women to realize their rights and take greater leadership in long-term work related to disaster preparedness and response. The response also provided an opportunity to use the power of information to support women to demand the things they needed to realize their rights after the disasters, and in so doing, to hold the humanitarian sector to account, to recognize, value, and respond to women. Government, women's leaders, and international NGOs recognize action, aids work for promoting visibility of women as first res- responders in a disaster. Action aid work is ongoing in Vanuatu and includes facilitating women's dialogue on climate change preparedness, facilitating peer learning exchange with the global communities, supporting women's leadership in early warning through the establishment of women's weather watch or woman wet and weather, early warning system in Tana, Eromango and Eton, Malo and Malekula, working with women to identify long and short term solution to issues that are increased during crisis, such as gender-based violence, finance violence, financial violence, and food security. Ms. Fano says Accent Aid Vanuatu is equipping women with resources, skills, and knowledge by training them to be able to have self-confidence to have their voices heard. We have given them the fishing line, hooks, baits and taught them how to fish. Then show them the fishing site and let them learn to catch their own fish. We are not handing it to them on a silver plate, but rather have them learn skills that will survive them even if ActionAid decided to move on. In 2015, ActionAid Vanuatu implemented two of its programs across Vanuatu, the Women Weather Weather or Women's Weather Watch and Women It Talk Talk Together Network. Ms. Fano says the network provides a safe space for women to speak openly about climate change and the resulting impacts to their lives. 
Women Talk Talk Together is a network compromising of 5,000 plus network members who resides within five islands in Vanuatu, Tana, Eramango, Malekula, Efate, and Malo. The network provides a safe space for women to speak openly and in their own way about climate change and the resulting disruptions to their lives. We have key message prepared by them to send them to prepare for a tropical cyclone. When we have an advisory from Meteor Office, the members also have an emergency basket where they have identified themselves the most important items such as birth certificate, identification card, knives, match, torch, radio, crackers, water, sanitary pads, panadol, bandaid, etc. for immediate evacuation to seek shelter or move to a higher ground. Having the Woman Network mobilized sitting inside disaster committees and Provincial Emergency Operations Center, POC, making sure that decisions are made must be an inclusive gender responsive. In 2019, the women from Woman Talk Talk together with ActionAid launched Woman's Woman Weather Weather, which puts information and technology in the hands of women across Vanuatu. Through a system of bulk SMS messaging, women's leaders are able to share clearly early warning message to 77,000 women in seconds. These innovative and localized efforts allow women in remote communities to access and share up-to-date information which can help save lives and livelihoods. In 2020, women's Weather and Weather, which is also Woman's Weather Watch, was valuable in alerting thousands to Tropical Cyclone Harold, as well as spreading awareness of COVID-19 and health messaging approved by the Vanuatu Ministry of Health. This has led to the women involved now being seen as trusted and respected source of information within their communities during a crisis. Ms. Fano says the impact of what Accent Aid Vanuatu is carrying out in Vanuatu is transformative. Women Talk Talk Together members, they prepare early and it saves lives. And also the community has come to understand that WIT members are getting accurate information to inform the community of early warning preparedness. They also have new income streams and alternative livelihood that they have identified to grow during peacetime. So when they are in crisis, it can support them in terms of cash, food security, alongside their safety, dignity, and protection. It is very, very important. Women always put their kids and families' welfare before valuable things. An example, a husband will think of preparing his asset like boat or truck, while a mother will be getting extra clothes, documents, food for their kids to move if their house is not strong or safe enough to withstand a tropical cyclone category 5. For women, it's always safety first. They are the first responder at home, and when you put them in charge of a committee, they take it very seriously and make sure everyone's safety comes first. The man-made things will come later. Life matters to women. Their safety, dignity, and protection is number one priority and will always be. She says the disaster donor partners have been of huge support towards disaster preparedness and responses in Vanuatu. I would like to say thank you to DFAT for ongoing assistance to Vanuatu government and to ActionAid and other AHP and ANCP partners we have in Vanuatu to help our community to become resilient. Flora Fano, the country program manager for ActionAid Vanuatu. Flora Fanu from ActionAid speaking with Pacific Prepared reporter Florence Fanua. Pacific Prepared is supported by the Pacific Media Assistance Scheme with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. 
Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of PACMAS or the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, NBC Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Capital FM 107 Vanuatu, FBC Fiji, Samoa National Radio 2AP and TBC Tonga. My name is Fred Hooper. Please share any information that you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.